Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness with your host, India Lorik Wilmot. Who lived in Brooklyn? Season five. Season five. It's season five, good people. Today's guest is Sheena Collier, founder and CEO of the Collier Connection and Boston Wild Black. With over 20 years of experience in business development, growth strategy, and brokering partnerships, Sheena has a proven ability to build communities by getting the right people in the right spaces and moving them to take action. Sheena works with mid to large sized companies, startups, and anchor institutions to reach and grow their audience through in-person and digital launches and space activations. In 2020, she founded Boston While Black, a digital and in-person membership network created to help retain Black professionals, students, and entrepreneurs in the region through access to a digital community, culturally relevant virtual and in-person experiences, and authentic personal professional connections. Previous to the Collier Connection and Boston While Black, Sheena was Director of Economic Opportunity at the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce and Boston Promise Initiative Director at Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. She is the recipient of several awards and recognitions, including being a two-time recipient of the Boston Magazine 150 Most Influential Bostonians, Boston Business Journal Power 50 Movement Makers, recipient of the Harvard Club's Boston Most Influential Woman Award, recipient of YW Boston's Academy of Women Achievers Sylvia Farrell Jones Award, the 2018 recipient of the Get Connected 25 Who is Who Millennial Leaders of Color Awards, just to name a few. Most recently, Sheena was appointed to the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority Board of Directors by Governor Maura Healy. Folks, we are moving and shaking and taking up space. Let's welcome Sheena Collier. Thank you, India. Thank you for that very warm welcome. You know, you don't always remember all the things you've done, so I appreciate that. Of course, very well-deserving of all of your accolades. And myself and our listeners, we're looking forward to learning more about your journey of Blackness. So are you ready? I am ready. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Okay, Sheena, so you're raised in Albany, New York. You left home to attend Spelman College, which is in Atlanta, and then turned to the Northeast to attend Harvard's Graduate School of Education with a focus on community engagement and partnerships between schools, communities, and families. So how has your family life, your upbringing, inspired you to focus your professional and personal endeavors as a connector, a convener, an organizer in these corporate, nonprofit, and community spaces? Growing up in Albany, I think Albany is a city that folks don't really know a lot about. We know it's the capital of New York. Well, some people know that. They definitely think it's New York City. I think in a lot of ways, similarly to Boston, I grew up in a city that though it wasn't majority Black, my spaces were because like Boston, you know, Black folks tend to be somewhat segregated in Albany. So we have a couple of neighborhoods that we're concentrated in. And that was my neighborhood. And so I actually grew up going to 
all black schools. My elementary school and middle school, I could walk to both of them. My first principal was a black woman. My first grade teacher was a black woman and went to church with my family. Like I just grew up in true community. That was really my blueprint for how black people really professionally, personally, socially are in spaces with each other all the time. Being in a place where I would see my teacher at church, she would also come to my family's house for a fish fry or cookout. To me, there was none of these boundaries or barriers around how we connect with each other. And it's really translated into the way that I convene people now. A lot of it on the surface just looks very social, but really it's because I grew up with this belief that the people you want to do business with, the people that you're going to support politically, the people that are going to educate your children are the people that you know personally, socially, you know, they're civically engaged with. That was just kind of who particularly my father was. He was a connector and convener himself. And I was born late in my parents' lives. I have seven older siblings. So my parents were significantly older. So my father was at the March on Washington. He organized with A. Philip Randolph. You know, my mother had went to Selma. So they just instilled in me, not even in a very intentional way. I don't remember being sat down and told, this is how Black people create community. And I did this or did that. I just was soaking it up from being around them. And so by the time I was born, my father was really a leader in Albany and making sure that Black people took up space. And I didn't know it to be that at that time. But as I reflected later in life and even looked at what I was doing, I was like, oh, I actually got a lot of this from my father. I hadn't really thought about that. Lastly, really my mother's side of the family, who's from Keysville, Georgia. It's about 30 minutes outside of Augusta. And my aunt, Mayor Emma Gresham, she was the first mayor of the town, second ever Black mayor in Georgia's history. That side of my family, again, was big on and still is reunions and convening and making sure you know your family history. My great-grandmother had nine children. And so her children, which included my grandfather, who was an AME preacher, and my Aunt Emma, they really did a lot to make sure that all those branches of the family knew each other and created this formal reunion structure where we have officers, bylaws, we have a family song. I served as the president for a couple of years. I didn't realize other families didn't do things like that because that was just how I grew up. And it was just really important for our family to, again, be in community with each other, but, you know, in a somewhat organized way. We voted on where are we going to go this year? You know, the president is responsible for bringing together the reunion that year. So I'm now taking all of this that comes from my upbringing and brought it into definitely the social spaces that I'm in with other Black people, but even in the corporate space. In a lot of the conversations I have with corporations, we partner with almost two dozen through Boston All Black, is that community, connection, culture, music, food is important to Black people. And we need to be in spaces where we can show up as we are versus having to leave those things at the door, particularly because we all spend so much time at work. I oftentimes tell my students and other folks that I'm engaged with in terms of research or let's say some sort of mobilization efforts that oftentimes the draw to the good work that we do is autobiographical. It stems from something that's internal and innate within us. And we either seek that out throughout our life course, 
or we grapple with it just depending on what our autobiography is. And so listening to you speak about for you as an adult, your identity around being a connector and convener and organizer really stood in community or within process with how your own home context was. And I think it's interesting to note that perhaps maybe there are folks that might think that the Northeast is very segregated and that the possibility of being in very specifically organized Black enclaves of support is something that only exists in the South. And so I appreciate you really speaking to, hey, Albany's in the Northeast. No, it is the capital of New York State, not New York City, although that's the epicenter for a lot. But families like yours was able to create this context that would almost mirror what was happening down South when I speak to friends who are from, say, Tennessee or Mississippi, where most of us have these very segregated concentrations. So I think that's beautiful that you really cited to that. So I appreciate that. But I also like the fact that you're able to take a step back and look to just even the ways in which we organize ourselves in families and how it was very important for your family, in particular, those that were down in Georgia, as well as those up in the Northeast that says, no, we need to be here for one another and create community, particularly in times and spaces where we're not always welcomed. And so instead of having this deficit mindset of, oh, why can't I be over here? We're going to create it for ourselves and we're going to thrive in it. So I appreciate you sharing how your values around family and connection and community has really served as a guiding principle to the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Something that I have tried to press upon my parents, my father passed away about five years ago and, you know, my mother's still in Albany. Though I can articulate all of that now, as I said, I didn't feel like there was an intentionality around that. And so as my parents started to get older, I actually bought them one Christmas, both these books that were like one set of mother's story, one set of father's story. And they gave these prompts for what was your first job? When did you first realize who you were? Things like that. Neither one of them filled them out (laughs) because I started to have this fear that I was going to lose my family history. I know these things. This cousin over here knows some stuff. My sibling knows some things, but I wasn't feeling like it was in one place that I could refer back to. And so unfortunately, my father passed before I could really get much information from him. He's from Tennessee. I actually don't know much about that side of my family. But for my mother, something very unexpected that came out of the pandemic, my mother has four sisters. I said, you know what? Since we're all spread out, let's do weekly Zooms just so we can like have eyes on each other. And so this is my mother, her siblings, my first cousins, my siblings. And so we did it every week, probably for about a year, year and a half. And then I said, you know what, since we're having this time together, let's record each sister telling her story. And each of them was interviewed by a grandchild or a younger person in the family. So I have, you know, all these Zoom recordings of my mother and all her sisters telling variations of the same story because they're very close in age. It just was really powerful. One of the biggest things I regretted was not learning more about my father, not getting recipes from him because he's a great cook. As I continue to get older, particularly Black Americans, we've lost some history Get your parents on video talking about themselves. Get your grandparents on video, audio, whatever it is, talking about themselves. Because as you said, the autobiographical piece can dictate your path. Either you're running to it or from it. 
you know, depending on what has happened. But I think that the power of people and particularly Black people knowing their history, which is why it's kept from us so much, you then understand that you are building off of something. You're not starting from scratch. And that is really what propelled me to do Boston All Black. I went to a trip to Ghana for two weeks. I already had the idea for years and was socializing it. But then I went to Ghana and got like a K through 12 education in like two weeks. And even me, someone who I just told you my family history, I still don't feel like I know Black history like I should, starting back to the continent. And so being able to experience that, I was like, I literally can do anything. Us not having that connection, whether it's to our family history or to our broader Black history, I think has this impact where we don't feel like we can achieve certain things. We feel like we're always starting from behind, and it's just not true. I appreciate folks like yourself, whether it's within the microcosm of your own family, but then even how you extend it professionally, that there's a lot of intention around documenting, formalizing the information, curating these spaces where there's levels of comfortability and for connection. Because as human beings, we are seeking connections with others. That's just how neurologically we are built and we yearn for that. And so I can see that some of that intentionality also bleeds into your work. When I think about the origins of the Collier Connection around event planning and the ways in which you successfully launched events and digital campaigns where you're reaching from 25 to 25,000, right? Because there are folks who are also interested in building connection and the work that you're doing, the intentional building of these spaces. And then I know that you've worked with organizations, like I mentioned in your bio, the, the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, specifically around building wealth and education around the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. What does all that translate when you're with this mindset of having intentionality, wanting to convene in these spaces, curate spaces where, you know, the history isn't lost, the culture isn't lost, people are building relationships. And you're coming to a, a city as a young Black woman, coming to a city like Boston, that has a long-standing reputation for not being welcoming to Black folks in particular, where even how we move through the geopolitical space and the physical landscape of the city is segregated. I remember within the first couple of weeks of being here in Boston, taking the red line, one of our transit lines, and going on a platform. And I can tell based on who's left on the platform, which red line train just departed the station and vice versa, just to kind of say, okay, because they were going to different neighborhoods. What has it been like your experience in navigating a city like this, where you're coming from Albany, you're working with this sort of intentionality, and then it's like, what's this place? Even before coming to Boston, Atlanta actually was a shock for me as well. So though my family's from the South, I've lived in Albany my whole life. My father's from Knoxville. My mother was born in Memphis, but really, I would say it's from Georgia. And so they had been there, you know, decades before I was even born. And though I had that family experience, so I was having that with my family in New York, and then I would go to the South in the summers and go to the Philly where my grandparents were. However, when I went to Spelman, that really was my first time being all the way immersed in that. And I'm talking about Black people all the time, 
different classes of Black people, particularly wealthy Black people. Again, my parents were very intentional. So at home, I was in Nesby and I was in anything Black, (laughs) like I was in it. But I think the difference being at an HBCU in Atlanta, it's not like a carved out space. I mean, I guess you could say the university itself is or the college itself is. But it just was like your day-to-day life. And that was different for me. I was used to going over to this program or over to this thing. But just being 24-7 surrounded by Black people and Black people who are high achievers. I remember when I first got to Spelman, I cried because I got in provisionally. I skipped that in my acceptance letter. I just saw that I got in. And it wasn't until I got down there that essentially I was told, you're a great student. But I just didn't know enough to do this because my parents didn't put me in this direction to do community service or be in clubs and all that. So I wasn't a well-rounded student. I was great academically. And Spelman really values that service. So they let me in provisionally and essentially were like, you have to get at least a C this first semester or you're going home. I was on a roll. I was top of the class. And my counselor said to me, like, you're used to being a high achiever in Albany here. Everyone's a high achiever. (laughs) And so that was a real shock to me. So I was adjusting to that. I was there for four years. It was a really tough adjustment for me. Then I came here. I would say that I never even fully took advantage of all I think Spelman offered because I was having a different type than what happened at Harvard, but a similar of like, do I belong here? And so then when I came to Harvard, it was more about race and class. And I yearned for my Spelman experience. Then I got the importance of it. Like I got up here and I was like, okay, you're not going to get that experience again. You should have really leaned a little bit more into it. And I had heard all these things about Boston. I didn't have any intention of coming here. I'd applied for all these grad schools in Georgia, NYU, you know, being from Albany, you want to live in New York City your whole life. Just on a whim, honestly, I applied to Harvard. They were at a grad school fair at Spelman. And I was like, okay, this is like my stretch school. But at some point, I did start to believe like, you know, what? I think I could actually get in here. And I really started to focus on it my senior year. So when I got in, as I've told people this many times, it kind of got down to Harvard or uh, Columbia. I was going to go to teacher's college. And my mother was like, no, you will be going to Harvard. And I had a real fear. I'd never been the minority in a space, maybe in a program or a class because I was in honors class, but in life, I had never been in the minority. And so I had a really intense fear about moving here. And it was frankly reinforced when I first got here. You know, the fears that I had, my internship was in Charlestown, lived in Harvard Square. And so it was a really hard transition that later blossomed into me supporting other people. But I think that it was meant to happen because it brought out this part of me that again, was instilled by my early life But I didn't really have to utilize the connecting side of myself until I really needed it for myself, which is when I got here. I appreciate your candor, even the hindsight to look back to say, look at how belonging for me had shaped the ways in which I connected and built connectivity with others and then how it was activated in these different ways and particularly when you got here. Yeah. I shared that Spelman piece because anytime I get a chance to recommend to someone's child that they go to not necessarily just Spelman, but an HBCU first and maybe go to a PWI if they're going to go to grad school, you know, there's a whole cost side of it getting really prohibitive. But I think it's an amazing experience that 
experience of being seen. Mm-hmm. I was a psych major. For some reason, like the second class, I skipped class. I might have overslept. I, I don't even remember. But I got into an elevator later that week with my professor. I've only been to this class once at this point. It's probably a 100-person class. We both got in the elevator. I was super quiet. And then she said, Miss Collier, so why did you miss class this week? I said, you know me? And she said, yeah, I know you. I know all my students. I was just like, oh, my God. You know, aside from the fact that, like, am I in trouble? But I really felt like, wow, she saw me already. I graduated from high school at 16. I was really young when I went to college. I felt so small and so like, what am I doing and how am I going to navigate this? That was my second week in spaces that centered Black people and Black experience of like, you are seen. And it's not a utopia. All of it isn't great. I didn't have all great experiences there. But I do think that there is this experience of being seen that as you said in the beginning, we're all looking for, we are searching for belonging, whatever our identities are, we want to belong in those ways. And so being able to now create those spaces for other people with intention and the reason, even when I was doing event planning through Collier Connection, it didn't really have any type of Black people kind of bend or spin on it, but people definitely were hiring me because of my intentionality. Not because I did really great logistics, that was part of it, but because I was also intentional about how we brought people into the space and making sure that before you even got to this event, the space was created for you. Again, as I'm writing my book in my head, (laughs) I'm realizing how these things are connected to these past experiences, either spaces I didn't or did felt like I belonged. It then became my mission in life to, you know, make sure that other people felt like they belonged. What are the kinds of projects and issues the Collier Connection tends to focus on today, given the work that you're doing in terms of shifting the narrative around race and gender and class and equity in these spaces? The Collier Connection is my first business, and I started it as an event planning company, mainly because I knew I wanted to create connection, and I didn't know like the business model behind that. And events, to me, made the most sense. You know, it was something that I felt like I did well, something that I understood. I started out doing fee-for-service. Like you could hire me to plan your gala, your fundraiser, et cetera. I tend to work with companies or organizations that were trying to build an audience with folks of color. That really was my focus for a couple of years. And this was on the side because I was working. And that's what brought me to the Chamber of Commerce, first as a contractor to them. And then I eventually became an employee Because at that time in Boston, this conversation had resurfaced about, is Boston a welcoming place for Black people? And so this Color of Wealth report had come out about our income inequality. We were named the number one city in the country at that time for income inequality. And the chamber had a fairly new president, and he was trying to figure out what is the role of the business community in this conversation. And so I just happened to come there around that time and started to do work around what does it mean for the private sector to respond to this earned reputation that Boston has? And from being in that space, I also started to learn about and understand how much Boston's brand reputation impacts ability to recruit and attract talent here. Again, some of it perception, but definitely based on reality. I didn't really know what to do with all of it. I just was kind of learning. I went to school for elementary education. That had been most of my career. 
But I started to have this passion because of my interest in space and how people take up and have access to space around who actually gets to benefit from Boston. Because I actually think it's a well-resourced place. I don't think it is. It is a well-resourced place where there's a lot of opportunity. I don't know. My eyes were just continuously open to how much Black people in particular were not benefiting from all that Boston had to offer. Because I came here to go to Harvard, I came in with some level of access. I could see that people growing up here weren't having folks like me that came in weren't even staying around long enough. Once they got their degree, they were like, I'm out. Almost everybody I went to grad school with left, literally. So I had to rebuild my community right after grad school. And so through Collier Connection, I was doing free-for-service events, but then I started to do my own events in the city. Like now Collier Connection is hosting our own mixers or happy hours. I used to run a dinner club. And that just eventually led to Boston While Black as a concept. It was a phrase that I would use. It was a hashtag I would use. It was events that I did that I then spun off into a company because I realized and what I was hearing from people was, and this is like a big Boston complaint. I think this is not just for Black people in Boston either. People will be like, I don't want to wait until the next event to see the people I want to see. Like, what about in between? Now I have to wait for stepping out. I have to wait for Ebony Gala. I have to wait for this thing to have this gathering of Black people. But what do I do the rest of the year? I was like, hmm, okay. That's where I came up with like a membership model. Like, all right, there's something where we're always connected. You know, we have an app. It's just really like 24-7 connection between people. Boss Wall Black for me is really my main focus. Call Your Connection still remains say, like the overarching company. And I do speaking and consulting and things through there. But I really have had this focus the last couple of years on starting with Boston and then other cities at some point. Like what are really the ingredients of cities where Black people can thrive? Mm-hmm. And what's the role of cities? What's the role of corporations, universities, particularly in a city like Boston, who's really powered by institutions? In, you know, for moral and civic reasons, but from their perspective, for talent, they want people in these cities, they want people in their companies and universities. And so what I'm saying is back to what I said from my own family, that for us to feel seen and belong in these spaces, we have to be able to bring our culture with us. Be what you want to see. Act two, the road. How do you play? Hmm. That has become less clear as I've built Boston Wall Black because I've kind of taken my play and turned it into my work. Mm. <laughs> and so I, any type of business aside, love convening. I, I love hosting house parties. I love organizing my friends for trips or for things to do during a day. But it's become my job. I am now having to find other ways and other things that I enjoy because one, whatever I do in Boston, someone's going to put the stamp Boston Black on it, whether it has something to do with Boston Black or not. When I'm out and about just in my own personal life, again, so people, I still represent this entity. So I end up talking about it a lot. And I think just as I'm getting older, I just turned 40. I really like smaller, intimate, either by myself or with small groups of people. I love being on the water. I love being near the sun. But I think overall, I love laughing and fun. Like I'm actually very silly, very much like a homegirl. Like I truly love just being with my people, whether it's my family, my friends. I love 
going home for the holidays. It could happen in whatever setting, but I really, really love being with folks that I feel, particularly now that I do more stuff publicly, people that I can be myself around. I'm not being kind of analyzed or judged. One of the things that I've done this summer, again, in my year of turning 40, I love, love, love music. I joke around that I'm a music artist. I threw a Grammy Awards birthday party for myself. My favorite color is pink. So I had a pink carpet. We gave out awards. I recreated about 10 album covers of some of my favorite albums that were kind of the decor. So I love things that are music related. And then I'm also going to different concerts across the country throughout the summer. So I went to see Usher in Vegas. I'm going next week to Memphis to see the Hip Hop 50 concert with El Cool J, The Roots, et cetera. Anita Baker later in the year. So those are some of the things that I love. And again, I'm actually fortunate that what I do for a living does incorporate a lot of what I love. And it forces me to have to carve out even more of my own time because some of it is work sometimes. Although most people don't like to think of work as play, it doesn't seem like you can divorce yourself of the same connection and connecting with people. I think for folks like myself who are introverts, it's like, okay, I'm going to just sit over here. But for you, perhaps there's a rejuvenation factor in your reprieve from work, which still involves some of the same building of connections, what it is that you need in your spirit to recalibrate and to rejuvenate and to rebuild. It's still based on forging and being in community and forging connections with other people. No, I actually spend a lot of time alone. Like my actual recharging happens by myself. I really, really love being by myself. I probably am about 50-50. It doesn't seem like it to people and people are like, you must be an extrovert. And I obviously have an extroverted side. I do that for a couple of days and then I'm like, cool, I got to be by myself for like a week now. It sometimes happens to me during an event. My friends who know me really well can see it. I actually had a Boston Wall Black member who I don't even know came up to me at one of our events one time. And she said, are you an introvert? And I was like, yeah, why you say that? She said, because I've watched you at a couple of events. You retreat to the corner. Like sometimes within an event, I have to be like, all right, I need some time to myself. I think I get more out of seeing people connect. Like I love being the catalyst for it, the convener. I don't always need to be in the mix of it. I mean, people don't appreciate that when you're curating spaces for folks, there's a lot of work and activity that happens and thought that's exhausting because you're having to be critically thoughtful about who's in the space at the same time and the energies that come about. So I could totally see in the moment that you may need to retreat a bit to have a bird's eye view to kind of see, oh, how is this working? My staff see me stress, even when it's our summit that we do or things where I'm kind of creating like a VIP or guest list. Like it's very stressful for me because I need to make sure I don't leave out certain people. I need to think about who's done me a solid in the past six months that I need to put on this list. And it really is work because people take it personally when they are not included in a space that you've created. So I try to be very mindful of that. I try to document people I'm meeting along the way. It's definitely something that I'm trying to continue to get better at because I pride myself on being a connector, you know, and a convener. And I think people wholly underestimate because it seems like I'm just floating around. I'm just having fun and I'm talking to people, but I'm operating with so much intention. Even the events I stop by, 
I have a mental checklist. I need to make sure this person sees me. I need to make sure I say this to this person. It definitely can be exhausting. You know, when I think about Boston while Black and this vision around creating a city where Black people want to live and work because they have the spaces, they have the tools, they have the relationships, they're able to find their tribe, grow their network, navigate the city, and then have fun too. I can see how your values in spatial justice has served as a motivating factor for founding Boston While Black. How does Boston While Black, at least for now in present time, connect to what you vision as your overall purpose? I love the term spatial justice. I learned it somewhere along the way in doing this work. I heard someone say it. And for folks that haven't heard it before, there's a couple of different definitions to it. But essentially, the way that I utilize it is about how access to space is controlled and who gets access to physical spaces, but also the kind of resources and opportunities that are connected to space, like space as a physical thing and space as a concept. As I was building, what later became Boston Wall Black, I actually participated in some small mastermind group where we had to write out our mission statement. So there was some type of prompt that helped you to get to, what are you actually here to do? When I give other people advice, people come looking for like career advice. And I always say, first, work on what your mission is because you can do a lot of jobs to meet your purpose, mm -hmm. but you should just be clear about your purpose. So for me, I know that regardless of what I'm doing right now, Boston Wall Black is the vehicle for it, is to provide access, resources, opportunities to Black people. Anything you see me do, that's probably going to be the reason why I'm doing it. One, because I think that I've been blessed with access and feel a responsibility to open it up for other people, whether that's physical access or whether that's knowledge about how to gain the same access. I just know, like I'm from Albany. Why am I in these spaces other than to be able to provide it for other Black people? Like, I really believe that. And then I think just because of the institutions that I've been blessed to attend and then just my own serious intention around connecting and learning how to be a better convener and gatherer, it is in service of Black people taking up more space in this country, in this world whether that's in professional spaces, whether it's around nightlife, you know, whether it's around political office or civic engagement. I just think that I'm a vehicle for that. Right now, this is the way that I'm doing it. There's probably not too many things I do in my life that aren't connected to that, whether it's an individual Black person or the thousands of Black people in Boston. That really is why I'm here. And I feel blessed. We don't all get to live out our mission and purpose through our vocation. Right. To be able to combine those things and essentially like this is also just what I do every day. That's like a top tier life to me. And again, I just said there's places where it can get murky and sometimes I want to separate a little bit. But for the most part, I just think that I couldn't ask for a better life. I'm always who I am, wherever I am. Running a company called Boston Law Black, anyone I'm meeting with kind of knows where I'm starting from. And I've never really fully worked in the corporate space. I worked in nonprofit education. They all have a corporate tinge to them. I've typically worked in places that are, I would say, 50 people or less. Like I've never worked in big corporate. And so I listen to stories that our members and other folks tell me about their workplace experiences. And I'm like, goodness gracious. I've experienced some of it, but I think 
the things that we Black folks experience trying to navigate, I love that we're able to be a partner to companies or just a partner to individual Black folks to provide another side of that experience for them. If it's just a place to vent or an advocate for them in these spaces. I joked with my friends one time, I was on the phone with a big bank and I was talking about like swag surfing. I was showing them a video of an event I did where we had taken over the MFA. It's so, so refreshing. Like this is like my work meeting. You know, I'm talking to them about not the dance itself, but just like when people are able to be themselves in spaces, they are going to show up better because they're going to feel invested in by the employer. That is my personal mission, the access to info, resources, opportunities for Black people. Doing it through Boston While Black will continue to grow it through X City While Black. And I do it on the MCCA board, like really whatever spaces I'm in, that is the purpose that I'm leading with. How does Boston While Black measure its success, right? When it comes to some of these issues or meeting the needs of the community. Is success something where you can now see that you've expanded and have interstate collaborations, where it's a model in other metropolitan areas? How do you know that all this effort, intentionality around convening and gathering, you know, we're here, we did it. How do we measure that level of success? I think there's different levels of measurement. So there's measuring our success as a business, which is more concrete. We were able to recruit and retain X number of Boston Black members, corporate partners, and we do a lot of surveying of our members and our partners about changes in perception, their own perception of Boston. Do they feel like they have gained X number more connections? There's concrete measurements as a business tied to KPIs and those type of things tied to my staff. That is one measure of our success. And that's an area where we just turned three in July that we're continuing to grow. We typically do an impact report every year to talk about the impact that Boston Black, our family reunion event that we do in the Lawn on D, we went from a little over 3,000 people the first year to almost 8,000 people this third year. So like those measures of success, I would say for me, another measure of success, there's Boston Black, the company that I'm building. I employ five full-time people, all people of color, mostly Black. The same community I'm trying to create for members, I'm trying to create for employees, a place where they feel seen, where they can bring their whole selves to work, where they feel safe, psychologically safe at work. So that's also a measure I have. What is the type of company that we're building? And then I think there's, I guess, more the impact that we're having. So some things I've seen in the existence of Boston and Black that I would attribute not fully to us, but we're definitely a contributor. I see a lot of conversations in the city about belonging and joy and the way people are talking about Black people. Because something that I preach every single place I go is I don't want to only have conversations about Black people through the lens of disparity, that we need to be talking about us through one, highlighting the positive sides of being Black, which there are many, but also looking at where are we thriving? Where are we successful? So we can replicate those things. We can't replicate stuff we don't talk about. I see more of that in Boston, conversations about joy and belonging. And other people attribute some of that to Boston All Black and just the language that we use publicly. I think this idea that the kind of social professional, civic can all live in one person and all sides are important. You know, the city has this new position, new-ish called director of nightlife economy. And that's something that I raised with the now mayor when she was running for office. 
the importance of having someone who is paying attention to social and civic life because it's for our city, it's an economic driver. And then, yes, I talked about knowing our history as Black people. Sheena, Boston One Black, we're carrying forward in a different way work of people that have come before us and are working alongside us. And so I do see some of our success will not be even in the next five to 10 years. It'll be like how have we changed the landscape of how cities and companies think about what they should be providing for Black people? How have we changed the conversation and how have we inspired? I have younger people that work on my team and even younger that I mentor. How people show up and lead. The fact that there are people watching me and the way that I lead and show up in life that will emulate some of that. It'll carry the work I'm doing forward even further. I see us in history books and being a part of a bigger story about how Black people continue to gain access in this country. So there's many measures of it in ways that, again, are very concrete because, you know, we need dollars. We need to be able to say, like, we've actually made this impact. But I know that the bigger impact is around how do we move things forward for Black people for generations to come. That's beautiful, particularly as it relates to the legacy and what you want the legacy to be for Boston While Black. I think that not just for Boston, wouldn't it be great that there's a Albany while Black and Augusta, Georgia while Black, to see that legacy extended, not just in terms of the kind of change this work and this organization has been doing in the city where it was founded, but that other cities are able to see this kind of legacy, the successes as you've defined it, and they put their own spin on it. That definitely is part of the blueprint for Boston All Black. You know, Boston as the founding city to be a model, but for there to be a Seattle Wall Black and Austin Wall Black and Phoenix Wall Black and all these different cities. So a lot of what we're doing now is trying to codify what we do. We're still very, very early company. So some of it is experimenting and we're trying this and trying that, but we're getting to a point now where we're like, okay, what are the things that make this successful that could scale to another place? Because some of Boston while Black is Sheena, right? Sheena can't scale to other places. So what are the pieces that can scale to other places? And even our tagline, find your tribe, grow your network, navigate the city, have fun. It's kind of like our formula for belonging. Those things could look different in another city, depending on what the context of that city is. But we're saying this is a formula for Black people having belonging in a city. So Definitely stay tuned for a city near you. We have people that reach out from other places. The National NAACP Convention was here in Boston a couple of weeks ago. And so we met people from all over the country who were like, can you bring this to our city? And so we're starting to formulate, like, what is that strategy to grow from a business perspective? What does that look like to scale to other places? And then again, what are the tenets of this that can be applicable to another place? Boston has these very unique challenges, but I do think there's something about just Black experience across the country that can be replicated other places. Get Act three, where we land. All right, Sheena. So we have come to the end of our program, our episode with you. And this is a time I usually ask all of my guests to share any upcoming events, showcases. Where can people find you to learn more about the Collier Connection, Boston Wild Black, and all the things that are coming up for folks this fall? 
At its core, Boston Law Black is a membership community. We have, at this time, a little under 1,200 Black professional students, entrepreneurs who are part of this digital and in-person membership network. And we typically open membership about once a quarter. So we will be opening for the last time this year in around October, November. To get more information, bostonwallblack.com, to join our email list. We're on all the social channels, but particularly IG and LinkedIn at Boston Wall Black. And so we're always sharing, you know, when we're gearing up to open up membership again. We also do two public signature events that have already passed for the year, but we're gearing up for 2024. So we do a summit called How to Boston Wall Black. It's essentially a conference, but with a twist. And it really is showcasing, highlighting the how-tos of how to navigate a city. We have sessions on everything from buying a home to dating, to meeting your Black elected officials, to working and being Black in tech in Boston. It used to be in the spring, but that'll be happening in fall 2024. And then our really huge event is our BWB family reunion. Based off of my own family reunion experience with my family, we just did it for the third year, July 2023, and it is all things Black community culture and experiences. We have a spades tournament. We have double Dutch lessons, line dancing, face painting. And this literally brings out all ages from babies to grandparents are at this event. We had, like I said, almost 8,000 people this past summer. So that's something that we will have in 2024 too. So we love for your audience to come to those large signature events we have a lot of sponsors of those events. So if folks are at companies that want to sponsor and then join Boston Wall Black if you're in the greater Boston area and also talk to us about your city and if you'd be interested in seeing something like this in the city where you live. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sheena Collier, for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.